Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. 30 years ago, Al Gore took office as vice president of the United States. Over the intervening period, he has lost a campaign for president and reinvented himself as the Nobel Peace Laureate branded conscience of the climate movement. But years removed from his film An Inconvenient Truth and with countries like Germany following his environmentalist policy prescriptions, has Gore's vision borne out? Joining me to assess are my colleagues Ken Braun and Parker Thayer. Uh, Gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. All right. So, Ken, you just wrote a seven-part series for CapitalResearch.org on Gore's 30 years of climate errors. What are those errors? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, a, a number, of, as you noted in your intro, um, the nation of Germany has largely adopted, not largely, but in, in, in some significant ways, uh, adopted many of the prescriptions that he's put forward over the last 30 years, um, you know, relying on the weather dependent wind and solar energy, opposing nuclear energy, shutting down their natural gas facilities. And the result of that is that Germany um, is now uh, earlier this year or or late last year, I should say, uh, drove up the price of coal uh, across the world because they were scrambling to keep their electricity on. Um, the, you know, natural gas burns cleaner. If they really wanted to have a smaller carbon footprint, they should have gone bigger into natural gas like the United States did um, against Al Gore's advice. And we ended up lowering our carbon emissions by from 2006 through 2021 um, on an annual basis. We were had reduced our carbon emissions by an amount that roughly equaled the entire annual carbon output of Germany the world's fourth largest economy. So, uh, you know, just on the energy sector alone, uh, Gore's advice over the last 30 years has been reliably against not only the carbon reduction that he professes to be advancing, but um, more importantly, against the, uh, the fuels that uh, help, our, help us prosper and, and uh, make the world a wealthier place. Well, and, and you note in your series many of the predictions that he made, that that Gore made in An Inconvenient Truth about how the world was going to change in the intervening period. We can look back on them now, and they should have happened. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they did not come to pass. Yeah, for for example, um, the Inconvenient Truth movie that you mentioned showed that in one egregiously uh, aerial image, uh, twenty foot rise in sea levels. The, they show, you know, the movie shows good chunks of Florida, parts of Manhattan, all underwater. Um, this is a gross misrepresentation of how fast sea levels have been rising and how much they're supposed to be rising in the future. Um, if you read NASA's own data, they they say since you know Gore became vice president, for example. Um, less than three and a half millimeters a year of sea level rise. That's a couple of coins stacked atop each other. In the next hundred years, the models that they purport to to be using show 13 inches of sea level rise over the next century. And to give you an idea of how silly that is as something to worry about, over the last 122 years, 
sea levels have gone up eight inches. And, you know, this hasn't been something that we've even, we've had world wars, we've had, you know, the Great Depression, we had the Cold War, all these other things that I mean, were much I mean, far from, more far worrisome. From being, far from being flooded, Miami and New York City are the land is more valuable than it's ever been. And this is actually in some ways a social problem because housing costs have surged. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, there are, proposals, there are even proposals out there. That they're thinking about expanding Long Island and Manhattan into the ocean more. You know, is that really and, something that you do when you think that the entire world is about to consume all land in a giant mass of salt water? And, and, and the, not only are this is entirely possible. I mean, the Netherlands is in some places 22 feet below sea level. They've engineered an entire country with major, major valuable real estate that's that you know several meters below where this where the oceans are. I mean, humans are able to adapt to these things as we have over the last century or so. Um, when New York became one of the wealthiest single cities in in the world, and obviously Florida is a quite a prosperous place right now. So, I mean, the, the, the Al Gore's predictions are filled with alarmist nonsense like this that just hasn't borne up to, you know, the facts since the movie came out in particular, or to just common sense logic like we're speaking of. I mean, yeah. I mean, you you, ju- you mentioned you you just mentioned the Dutch and their whatever five hundred year war against the sea. In the twentieth century, they managed to reclaim so much land from the sea they made it a province. the The province of Flevoland was reclaimed from from the sea. So, in other words, you're telling me they mm-hmm. found the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> you know, or or, it, it, or at least built it. Yeah, they, you know, they built it. Talking about this makes me wonder how much the climate nuts like Al Gore even really believe the predictions they're making. You know, because if if Al Gore really believed that the predictions he made 30 years ago were going to come true, instead of, you know, at at some point uh, along those many predictions that he made, he would have concluded that things were already too late, which many climate activists have. They say that we're already doomed and that there's nothing we can do. And instead, they continue to you know, advocate for policies to fight, uh, you know, they, they advocate for decarbonization and fighting climate change when, like you said, a lot of our resources would be better allocated towards the remarkable human capacity to engineer our environment and to make things safe like they did in the Netherlands. And you know, of course, if they don't even believe these ideas, then what are they really fighting for? They don't seem well, to believe their predictions. Well, per the name of this podcast and our mission here, uh, Influence Watch, um, they're looking for influence. I, Al Gore, I, I wrote this and it came out, I believe, before the, the annual uh, meeting of the pretty wealthy people at uh, Davos. And Al Gore put on yet another angry performance there, um, saying just what you were alluding to, Parker. He was getting even more acrimonious about it's too late and we've ignored everything. And I mean, I won't. You know, scream the rant here, but uh, <laughs> the, he, he hasn't changed, and and it's it's all about you know acquiring. If 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 they were really about cha- making the changes in our carbon emissions, that has been the justification for this over those thirty years that we've had to endure Al Gore's preaching. Uh, a a Manhattan project for nuclear energy would have been the most important thing imaginable that we could have been working on. 
But yeah. Al Gore has. Yeah, you know, while, we're dis- a, while we're discussing the Europeans, you know, you would think that the Al Gores of the world, the uh, Greta Thunbergs of the world, would say, you know, France almost solved its problems. They built extensive nuclear energy. I want to say back in the seventies, and then. Mm-hmm. On top of that, they built the the TGV, the railway system, the passenger railway system that is the envy of everywhere outside of Japan. And And they did. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So, so I I mean, you know, you can functionally instead of getting on an airplane in in Paris to go to London, you can get on a train, roughly the same travel time that's powered largely, or at least was until recently, powered largely by nuclear energy. Yeah, and and you know, meanwhile, here in the U.S., we're spending the environmental groups are spending how many millions of dollars per year to fight any and all expansion of nuclear power? Their entire groups just dedicated to fighting the proliferation of nuclear energy. Ken, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so proceeding on the nuclear on the nuclear issue. Yeah, and Al Gore, I believe, during his his two thousand his ill fated two thousand presidential campaign, referred to nuclear energy as a crushing disappointment. Well, you know, it's a crushing disappointment because of the policies we put in place. The French proved over a, a remarkably short period of time that they were able to ramp up facing an energy crisis in the seventies, convert a good chunk of their electricity production over to nuclear energy, a majority, in fact. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the trains are an interesting uh, juxtaposition against, say, um, the the jet fuel inhaling Concorde, which was pretty much mothballed. And despite it being a pretty fascinating piece of technology and obviously uh, increased the speed of air travel, but just wasn't economically viable uh, against the old slower planes and <laughs> that, that uh, the, the world uses. So, yeah, I mean, the, the nuclear energy... The nuclear piece is such an obvious solution that yeah. you just have to wonder about the agenda and the motivations of the people who. Yeah, I was actually, car- actually going to push on that a little bit. The, yeah. you know, it seems the- to me that you know, nuclear energy, you mentioned Al Gore called it a crushing disappointment. The only reason it could be a crushing disappointment in the U.S. is because it's getting crushed by regulations. Right, and it, and it raises the question... You know, given uh, you know how emphatic the environmentalists led by Gore say the threat of climate change is, the threat of carbon emissions is, that you know why not take nuclear energy off the shelf? Why not step down where you can from coal to natural gas, which they have now denounced? I put this to both of you. You know. Why Why are these effective, proven, I mean, you know, in the whatever 70 years that civilian nuclear energy has existed, if, I mean, maybe Fukushima changed this, but I think the only way that you could kill somebody using nuclear energy that has happened is it's run by communists and subject to Soviet management practices that everyone admits are terrible. <laughs> and built before 1970. Yeah, it, 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 
the overregulation of the industry, particularly in the United States, um, has stunted its growth. Who knows what sort of safety technology we'd have today if we'd had mm-hmm. over the last, you know, 30 years anyway, been building these things on, you know, over the 30 years that Al Gore has been in the public spotlight on this issue, if he had become the champion of building safer, bigger, more effective nuclear power plants, uh, the cost would have, would have come down. The, the, the safety production, which was already pretty exemplary. And also, uh, and also expertise, like there's been some loss. I think I was reading about this in France, actually. There's been some loss of expertise because it's been so long since Western countries have been building nuclear, nuclear reactors. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a great, a great line um, comparing the French industry, nuclear industry, which, as you say, is deteriorating as well, but it hasn't deteriorated quite as badly as the American one has. And... A, a French, uh, an American uh, engineer was asking a French engineer, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, the story's too good to, to not believe, uh, asking him, what's the difference here? What's the, you know, how, do you, how do you pull this off that we don't? And, well, here's the difference. He said, uh, in France, more, the most important thing is that our communists were all on board with nuclear energy in, in America. Yours are all opposed. And the second most important thing is that in France, we have 500 varieties of cheese and one model for building nuclear reactors. And in America, you have 500 plans for nuclear reactors and only one version of cheese. So I, I, th- th- those two things in a, in a more uh, um, literal sense are... Uh, have been ha- we've been deliberately hamstringing here. His his, sta- his statement on cheese will offend our colleague from Wisconsin. Uh, so, uh, but again, in the same in the same as or similar vein, you know, again, one of the reasons that the U.S. has actually managed to reduce the carbon intensity of the economy is because we've switched a lot of coal electricity production over to gas. And now, at least since the mid-2010s, gas has been the bete noir of the environmentalists. Why? And I put this to both of you. Because it works. I mean, Al Gore himself <laughs> was in favor of natural gas as a vice presidential candidate in 1992. It was a major plank of the, uh, of the Clinton-Gore uh, campaign platform. As a you know, uh, as a way to wean the United States off of uh, its reliance on on foreign petrochemicals, uh, but once it started getting uh, effective, Al Gore changed his tune. I mean, I, I, I bet if windmills could somehow become reliable, efficient energy that didn't pollute the landscape and, and kill bats and eagles and everything else noxious that they do. Um, you know, if we could somehow put them in space and bring the power back down to Earth and without any uh, inner, you know, people um, who, pl- people who played happen. SimCity, people who played SimCity 2000 might remember the hypothetical microwave power plant. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah, if we could pull all that off, I, I, I think Al Gore and the Enviros would would change their tune and decide that even this this is terrible and we need to quit. Uh, yeah. I mean, Greta Thunberg was out there protesting windmills uh, yeah. just last week. No, it's it's the windmills were not intersectional enough, and they encroached on indigenous land. I heard, you know, and that kind of gets into uh, where 
all of the environmental stuff reaches its peak badness, I think, is kind of in the ESG space, where, you know, the only reason, uh, you know, as, as Ken said, that one would be opposing natural gas is because, you know, they, they want to move on to the next thing. And the next thing is what they all happen to be invested in through ESG, you know, ESG retirement funds and ESG uh, climate funds like the Blood and Gore Fund that Ken wrote about. Um, you know, yeah, let's let's let Ken, let's let Ken introduce the Blood and Gore Fund. Who is David Blood? Why does he matter? David Blood was a, I believe, a Goldman Sachs investment manager. And uh, he and Al Gore got together. I am wanting to say sometime in the 2010s, 2013, maybe 14. A, um, an ESG focused investment firm named uh, Generation Investment Management, and their objective is to, you know, get companies to disinvest, get, get you know, to d disinvest from the, the conventional fuel space and dump money into the weather-dependent wind and solar projects. Uh, the, the, let's be frank, the land gobbling um, wind and solar projects. I can remember when conservationists used to want to conserve land instead of chew it up so uh they, they and anyway so the uh, and the blood and gore fund has been a joke that's been going around ever since it began um yeah it's a it's a esg focused fund that encourages disinvestment in coal natural gas more or less nuclear and uh you know, the, these are in petroleum. These these are the fuels that have provided most of the wealth that we see in our world. They're going to, for the foreseeable century, continue to produce most of the wealth. Yeah, I, that I, I think that's an that's an interesting that's an interesting point that you raise. That kind of all the wealth that we have comes from the, has come from the harnessing of you know has mostly come from the harnessing of conventional fuels. That you you see the industrial revolution take off when coal can be harnessed and coal can be burned and water can be turned into steam and you use steam to turn big machines and then you use big machines to make stuff or move stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Our, our, the aforementioned Dutch had wind turbines or at least windmills, uh, <laughs> the early wind turbines for, for a long time before, you know, before the industrial revolution takes off, it just didn't, provide enough energy density to 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 make the to make the magic happen of capitalism explode throughout the world um th there's just really no way to get you know we we, we continue to, to chase these battery technologies that always seem to be you know just around the corner and yet we've never been able to even come close to replicating the batteries that were put there by you know whatever god or or moving mover of the universe you wish to say um the natural turning, batteries of coal yeah yeah but, i was gonna say like turning either setting fire to something and, and mm -hmm. releasing the energy that way or by harnessing the the nuclear forces to generate insane amounts of heat is just so much farther long advanced than even you know, I mean, I have a laptop computer that has a tiny battery in it that lasts most of the day and probably has more battery power than, you know, cars had not long ago. You know, the even with all that development over the past 
30 years, it's still nowhere close to what we can get from the conventional yeah. sources. And, you know, the, the windmills, like Ken said, they weren't effective. They weren't effective enough to launch the Industrial Revolution back in the day. And the windmills that we have today aren't effective enough to power the expansion of, you know, first world capitalist markets in uh, developing nations. It's, it's just not going to work. And, you know, that's what that's the great scam, I think, of ESG and the environmental movement is they're selling a vision of a new world that we could, you know, launch ourselves into. But the reality is, is they're not selling a, a new way to do things. They're just all they're selling is tearing down what already is. Parker, since you brought since since you bring that up and since Ken mentioned the World Economic Forum earlier, you know, you, you guys remember that, you know, uh, the op ed by that Danish MP that kind of went, you know, has been, went viral as sort of the illustration of everything that's wrong with the World Economic Forum about, you know, how it's 2030 and I own nothing and I'm happy. <laughs> you know, you know, the, you know, I, I read that and wrote about it about the time that the this year's World Economic Forum was convening. And it, it basically hand waves away the question of where the energy is going to come from. It's we have clean energy and it's free. Yeah, it, it, mm-hmm. the answer to their question, when people raise concerns about how, uh, you know, how are these, you know, weather dependent energy systems going to keep everyone powered? Their answer is not, oh, well, we're going to find solutions. Their answer is you're going to get exactly as much energy as we give you and you're going to like it. I mean, at least give the Biden administration a hair's width of credit when they had that breakthrough at the National Lab that did nuclear fusion for a microsecond or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, at least if you had nuclear fusion, this would all change the economic equation because of the sheer yeah. amount of energy you would be able to harness. Yeah. Oh, but, you know, oh, you don't you you don't think that nuclear fusion would be would would immediately become you know if if, if somehow it became practical, viable, economically feasible, and all of the all the things it needs to be to to match well fission power that we have already. Um, you don't think that it would it would suddenly get demonized as you know th- 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 this is the oh, power yeah, of no, nuclear it, it, weapons it, it, being you know this is like nuclear it, weapons it, except for yeah, using it, it for it, energy it, yeah it'd be, it'd be we're making we're we're making H, oh, yeah. we're powering our home with h bombs or something there right? would there would be there would be, there would be round the clock cnn headlines about how uh you know citing various experts from the sierra club about how we're going to turn the entire planet into a star on accident with our fusion reactor. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, there's, there's another uh, wild part of this ESG uh, disinvestment in conventional fuels that, you know, power all of civilization. I, it's, you know, uh, to, to take an analogy, what this is effectively doing, this would be like a, a major Fortune 500 firm, by, by denying... 85, 90% of the energy that we use to create wealth. It's kind of like saying, well, we're only going to hire, we're only going to hire straight white men and we're going to ignore everybody else because of some bizarre political thought we have about it. You know, it's the same deal. You're just denying most of what makes the world profitable for some niche little um, assumption that really doesn't have any validity. And you're going PSG investing with that kind of an anchor around his neck isn't going to ever be as profitable as simple, you know, investing for the bottom line and increasing shareholder value and 
all of the sensible things that have yeah. been done for the last 300 years effectively. Yeah, actual actual progress on you know issues of environmental conversation, conservation. Sorry, is you know you, you called it an anchor on the neck. It's it really is because it's holding back the progress towards things like you know natural gas and nuclear energy, things that would be a reliable enough to use and also not harmful to the environment uh, or as harmful as earlier versions of fuel that we might have used. Um, you know the ESG funds are really holding us back because there's so much money and so much, you know, influence and uh, and power and interest tied to people who only want the proliferation of weather dependent energy systems, because that's what the ESG funds are so deeply invested in. That's what their financial futures rely upon. And so they can't consider any other, uh, you know, any other options because, you know, those solutions are too easy because (laughs) we put all our money into the one that's really hard. Well, let's talk about let's talk about a country that actually is trying to do the do it the hard way, uh, Germany. And help yeah. me, is it Energy Wende? Is that how you pronounce that compound oh. German word that describes the thing that they're doing? Where they're I think you're getting, I think getting ready. You're looking for is broke. <laughs> it's, it's all broke and it doesn't work. Yeah, there was a energy energy venda. Is that how you phrased it? I, I think you're correct. If that's true, um, that, that was a, a couple back at the, around Christmas time. Um, a story, just uh, you know, uh, the, the perfect iconic metaphor for the whole system. They were tearing down parts of a wind turbine farm in Germany so that they could reopen like a century old coal mine in order to get the electricity they needed. So it's, it's, it's all, it's always like, sometimes you'll have these journalists who are of maybe let's say a, a soft environmentalist view, you know, and they were taking, you know, apparently you can check online, like how much of the percentage is coming from each source and like Germany would be very high on coal and France would be very low on coal because France is using nuclear power and, uh, mm-hmm. Germany has been decommissioning its nuclear power as part of this energy transition. <laughs> yeah, and, and it isn't just Germany. I mean, Germany, or excuse me, it isn't just France that really made a, a, a good go of nuclear energy when they when they put their minds to it. South Korea, Japan in particular, even with the Fukushima, even with Fukushima, the Japanese are going back to, you know, they're re-engaging their reactor force uh, um um, fleet, um, uh, more or less because they don't have a whole choice. They're even more energy dependent than the French are without nuclear reactors. I don't think Japan really produces anything of a of a major conventional energy source domestically. And and that and that's an interesting another really important piece about nuclear energy. I mean, leave aside you know, there's a. a a valid argument to have that you shouldn't be subsidizing any form of energy production and let the market decide. But if you're going to subsidize something, nuclear energy has a has, has a number of advantages, even over oil, natural gas, coal. It's safe to produce. Far fewer people die per kilowatt hour produced from nuclear than any of the other three major sources of of electricity or, and, or and it would be um, even fewer transportation. If, you, if, if your if your power plant isn't designed by communists who aren't telling the operators all the design flaws in their communist nuclear reactor. Correct. And, and you know the amazing part is, look at that. Even with even with that Chernobyl 
was the example of that. Um, and they had a submarine that um, suffered some problems as well. But even even with the most incompetent management system that's ever been introduced to the world since capitalism was created, communism, they still couldn't, you know, irradiate the entire country with, with nuclear energy. It, it still sort of worked. Um, and, you know, so the safety issue is a really important thing. Another important thing is if we all ran on nuclear electricity, fluctuations in power prices would more or less disappear because exactly. even if you trip even if you triple the cost of the of the fuel itself, the fuel is such a unlike every other form of energy we produce, the fuel cost is a tiny fraction of the of the price of generating the power because it's just such a dense energy source. It's you know building the reactors and and assuring their safety is most of the cost, and then amortizing that out over the life of the plant and charging the customers accordingly. So, you know, I, I got one to uh, advocate for. You know, in a pure in a pure sense, nobody should be subsidized. But since we've thrown, I think Michael Schellenberger estimated. The uh, Germans alone, almost half a trillion dollars at their energy vendor, none of which went to nuclear energy. Half a trillion in nuclear energy would have gotten them along a lot closer to uh, the goals that they have. And, it, and it'd get us a lot closer if we took all of our weather dependent subsidies and, and instead, like I said, make a Manhattan project for nuclear energy and say we are we are going to by 2050 have our entire electricity grid be either nuclear or, you know, whatever remaining hydro plants we have and whatnot, and that's going to be how we produce power, you could probably get there. Well, uh, before I let you go, uh, Parker, do you have anything you'd like to, to promote to our listeners? Uh, no, not at the moment. I think we had a really great conversation. All right. Likewise. Very good. Uh, Thanks again to my colleagues, Ken Braun and Parker Thayer, for joining me. We will include links to Ken's uh, seven-part series on Al Gore's 30 Years of Climate Errors in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.